We're definitely going to be splitting this into at least two episodes. <laughs> what do you mean? <laughs> uh, I don't know. A lot of people listen to Joe Rogan podcasts and those things are like four oh, hours. Long. Oh my gosh. I can't believe it. Anyway. That's yeah, crazy. This is better than Joe Rogan. Um, I think one of the things that we need to, to reclaim in our community is this idea of heavenly mother. And I think um, there is a little bit of a tension in within the community, because I think, you know, a lot of people, when they, when we envision a heavenly mother, it's very tame, very domesticated, very pedestalized, quiet and matriarchal. Um, but I white, yeah, white, <laughs> but I love this idea of let's take that wild woman archetype and let's apply it to our, our, feminine divine. Right. And so what is a wild mother covered in like soil scrapes, sweat and salt. And like, like, how can we truly accept that? Or like, is that who heavenly mother is? And if, if so, how can we like truly live into that? Yes, <laughs> that is Catherine. Oh, I'll stop. Yeah. <laughs> Amber. Continue Amber. I know you have more. Okay. Sure. Yeah. Um, so your observations are uh, very astute, Madison. Um, I mean, it's, it's a humongous accomplishment that we're even willing to consider the mother as a domesticated white woman. <laughs> that took 200 <laughs> years. So I, I shouldn't complain um, too much. But I think that that, that vision um, is very much a reflection of um, the culture. It, it's, it's, a, um, it's a microcosm of everything that we've talked about. There are certain aspects of femininity that are acceptable, that meet the status quo. And so that's, that's what we've got. Those are the colors we have on our palette. And so that's what we can paint. Um, that's, that's the image that we can make. And is it a step in the right direction? I hope so, um, but uh, Catherine talked about mimicry and performance, and that's one of my, I think, biggest sore spots as it applies to this conversation. Suddenly, in certain circles, Heavenly Mother is trending, and so you get a lot of people, I, I think, who, genuinely want to be a part of the conversation and feel moved and uh, have, a, have a sense that something about this is healing and divine. Um, and yet, um, these same folks perhaps are not as far along on their journeys and are not as, as discerning or self-aware uh, and can't see how their own projections and limitations are what's being deified, as opposed to uh, encountering encountering the divine um, I think one of the prerequisites of encountering the divine is humility right and that is we don't do that because death right so when you approach the divine maybe it's the divine feminine in this case and you say I want to know who you are like will you please reveal yourself to me that requires putting something on the altar, many somethings, actually. It requires a certain kind of openness. It requires a blank slate. It requires a threshold for pain and discomfort. Um, 
And if you're willing to put those things on the altar and you're willing to be led and you're willing to be changed, the what what comes through um, what what has come through for me has been radical uh, a, a radical being of love but also fury <laughs> and and power and um, uh, reality and um, anger and beauty and sorrow and grief. I, I don't really know um, what I can say is that there was really nothing that could prepare me for encountering that presence and encountering that power. Um, I suppose my life prepared me for it slowly um, and incrementally. And then I got there and was like, wow, I'm quite surprised um, that that came together. Uh, but yeah, she's, I think that the, the goddess, the divine mother is um, so much more than what we would like her to be. I think that she's disruptive. Um, I think that she's very safe. And I think that she, um, is, is difficult to comprehend and difficult to hold because of all of our patriarchal conditioning. Uh, is she the missing piece in Mormonism? Um, Mormonism wouldn't be Mormonism. If that being, if we made space for that being, it, it wouldn't even be the same thing. Um, oh, but isn't and, that kind of hopeful and like kind of exciting? I don't know, cause that kind of like fills me with some excitement to think like, oh, we would not be the same if we made space for this, I don't know. It's kind of, it makes me really excited. Catherine, will you take the baton if I pass it to you now? <laughs> sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, it does. It, it makes me excited too, Madison. I think because um, I find um, because of all the reasons we've talked about Mormonism to be a bit constricting. And I don't mean like essential doctrines that my heart tells me are real and true, but the way that we've come to live it and the way that we've come to sort of be a container rather than seekers of light and truth, which the scriptures and Joseph Smith encouraged us to do, right? Like truth, wherever you find it, like that's, you, you take that, you incorporate it, it becomes you, it becomes, an expansive vision of gospel and of good news and of um, everything that Christ is, right? All light and truth is Christ. Um, and so it makes sense to me that we have a, a sort of um, incomplete and inaccurate and a uh, fallen version of that as a container as a church right like it's, it's a container for the gospel that um is not whole is not complete and is corrupted in a lot of ways and i think the idea of saying like the church in institution is corrupted is a very difficult triggering and like 
um, you know, it's like everyone's mind is saying apostasy, apostasy. Like it's just a very like people can't get a make space in their hearts for that concept unless they personally um, have felt things or had revelations that have been contrary or they've had something in their life whether whatever it is that has said wait a minute like something about what I've been taught or something about the way things are being handled or traditions or policies like is not resonating with the heart of my heart like is not resonating with the spirit that I've been familiar with um the only thing I can count on like what do I do with that and so it is very hopeful for me that like a heavenly mother is is that archetype of women. It's the archetype of, but it's the archetype also of just femininity in every creature and every human that, that says you can trust that heart. You can trust that intuition. Um, follow it wherever it takes you. And if that means you leave something burning behind you, you do it because you trust me. Um. In a paper I wrote a while ago, um, I, I put in a portion about this like vengeful, <laughs> vengeful is not really a word I like, but this the, the, the mother in her wrath, right? Like the mother in her, but it's like a state of prophecy that she's saying, if this, then this, and like, I'm, I've, I've warned you, I've told you. Um, in the book of Proverbs. So for context, it's sort of this time when um, the sins of Jerusalem are bringing its destruction essentially. And we have like Isaiah prophesying, we have like the ideas here, not that they're not being condemned for not living like the letter of the law, they're being condemned because their hearts are corrupted, that they've lost the desire for wisdom because of pride, because of ego, like all of these things they've given their heart to Babylon. And in um, the book of Proverbs, which scholars I trust, including Margaret Barker, ascribed to Lady Wisdom, capital W, so like the Divine Mother, um, these are her words. How long will scoffers delight in their scoffing and fools hate knowledge? Give heed to my reproof and I will pour out my spirit on you. Because I called and you refused to listen and you have ignored all my counsel. I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when panic strikes you, when distress and anguish come upon you. Then they will call upon me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Um... And I think that I, and I, this adds a whole other dimension to me of the sort of cycles of quote unquote apostasy that we talk about in our church that like, um, it's not about like looking at Moses or Abraham or can you hear me? Yeah. You just cut out for like three seconds. Okay. Um, it's not really about this sort of, um, collective dismissal of a prophet it's about our collective disregard for wisdom and um with oh 
Your, 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 are they, your battery's dying? They are. Can you hear me though? Oh. Yeah, I can hear Sorry you. Sorry about stuff. that. We've been on a long time, you guys. <laughs> 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 so, so essentially the idea of wisdom being, it's not like intellectual gain. It's not like being the smartest, whatever. It's about like, you understand the purpose of creation and you're honoring the purpose of creation through your, your actions and your, and your, um, how you live your life. Um, and so when we go against that, when we, we sort of live for ourselves versus living for each other, that's when we reject mother God. more clearly now in terms of like it's all been about the mother to begin with from my perspective like it's all it's been about we've rejected her countless times we rejected her through rejecting the savior we reject her every time we serve our selfish purposes um that like essentially say we're essentially doing what they did in the book of mormon right like we care more about um, our costly apparel, our things, our riches, whatever, than we do like being together and in love and harmony. So it's like simple, ultimately, like the concept is simple, but like, um, the practice obviously is like so complicated. Abby, do you have any final thoughts before you have to jump off? No, I'm just absorbing and, and taking it all in. I just feel like both of you have so much to offer on this subject. And I, yeah, I'm just like a sponge soaking it all in. <laughs> so thank you. But I do have to hop off. I'm really sorry. <laughs> but thank you so much. Thank you for being thank on, Abby. Yeah. I wish I'm, I'm excited to listen to <laughs> The rest of this. The rest of it. So that's a unique feeling. But thank you. Thanks, Abby. See ya. Um, I uh, I'm really interested in uh, the idea of kind of heavenly mother or lady wisdom, um, because to me it feels though as though uh, I've got a lot of thoughts and I'm trying to get them out in the right order. Um, it feels as though like there is a path of spiritual journeying, right? That like the, the end goal of spiritual practice is to arrive at wisdom and wisdom is a way of, a way of participating with reality in really, in a really cooperative participatory sense. Right. And there's a lot, there's a lot to wisdom that I think we're going to talk about. Um, but I, I have written here in the outline that I'm not sure I want a revelation from the brethren on heavenly mother, because I'm not sure I'd like it. And I think that I, I also like this, you know, Richard Rohr has the idea of the first half of life, second half of life. And I think that, you know, the brethren might be prophets for the first half of life. And, but I'm just, uh, and that's certainly a phase that we need to go. That's, that is a, a part of our growth and development that we really need. But I, I think that to, to arrive at wisdom, to arrive at a relationship with the divine feminine is something that organically arises up from within us rather than come, it, it doesn't come from outside of us. It happens from inside of, you know, it like organically, it's very grassroots and it's very bottom up. Um, and so 
like what is wisdom in the spiritual sense before we jump into wisdom as, as the divine feminine, what is wisdom in a spiritual sense? Sort of a scriptural um, definition would be understanding the paths of everything that lives. Um, And I think there's a lot to that small phrase in the sense that um, you're understanding the mysteries of creation, right? You're like, you're entering into the Holy of Holies space. You're seeing as God sees, you're seeing um, every moment collectively and individually and all of, all of the why of everything and the how of everything and the um, delicate and tender love woven through everything. Um, and so I don't, it's not an intellectual experience, right? It's an embodied experience. And so coming to the mother is, is coming into yourself that like you meet her as you meet yourself. And that's a full bodied experience. And it's, um, sort of the opposite of Babylon, sort of the opposite of the tower, right? The tower of Babel, tower of Babel. That's sort of like um, an image to me that's really striking as I'm getting older in a, in a new way that like, I don't know, kind of an archetypal image in the sense that like these people thought that they could access heaven with their own like willpower and strength and intellect. And that that's all was required is like, oh, we'll just build something really tall. Like how ludicrous, how ludicrous, right? (laughs) Like as a, as like, we would never do that now, but we like that, but we do it in so many other ways. Like we still do that. I mean, I, I, there's a space race right now to try and get into yeah. space by billionaires. So in some sense, I think we are. Well, <laughs> luckily that's just a few really delusional men, right? It's not like a yeah. collective. Well, yeah, that, that is, that is, that is a symbol. <laughs> You're right. Like that is the symbol yeah. of culturally what we, uh, at least one version of our culture uh, in the West that, that's sort of the pinnacle of achievement, which is ludicrous, right? So um, anyway, I, yeah, I think I answered your question. <laughs> Amber, any thoughts on, on wisdom as yeah. the end goal of spiritual practice? Yeah. Well, I'm glad that you mentioned Richard Rohr. That's a really great framework. And um it's interesting because many of the the oldest religions on earth have a like kind of public facing front, like a first half of life structure in place, but then they also have a mystical tradition. Um, and that's 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 somewhere where Mormonism is kind of lacking. Um, I mean, Joseph Smith was a very mystical man, uh, but from, from that point forward, we have the concept of personal revelation. We also have a lot of boundaries drawn around personal revelation, what it can be and what it can't be. And, um, and then the temple, um, I suppose that's some of our, our most uh, profound mysticism, but it's also um, 
I don't know. It, it's this, the way I'm about to say this, it's not quite what I want, but it's, it's open to everyone, <laughs> you know, after, after you can check some like behavioral boxes. Um, and so on the one hand, that's a good thing because you come into the experience with your level of consciousness and you get out of it, what you bring into it. But on the other hand, I think that approach is also reflective of a very first half of life um, philosophy. Uh, and and in, in some cases, these other religions, there's an implicit understanding that, um, that there are mysteries that are only accessible to those who have um, the desire in their heart and the willingness to, um, to make profound sacrifices of time and... Um, I, even identity, pieces of identity. Um, yeah. And so I think Christianity on the whole is, is probably more lacking in that um, arena than any other religion I'm familiar with. Uh, maybe you could say that Gnosticism was Christianity's mysticism, but um, we know what happened to that. Um, so I do, I do associate mysticism um, uh, or like, or the study of wisdom with the feminine. Um, within Christian history, it's interesting to see how both of those things were kind of excised from the narrative um, at the same time. And interestingly, a lot of Gnosticism revolves around um, discourse on Sophia, which is the Greek word for wisdom, and uh, Mary Magdalene also. Um, yeah, so... Um, I don't know if I have a working definition for, for what wisdom is, but it's interesting that it transcends um, Christianity, that it's a, there are wisdom schools and wisdom teachers kind of across religion. And it's, it's also interesting to me that um, within the Judeo-Christian tradition, it, there's a strong connection between the concept and femininity. Yeah. You know, it's, I think that is probably one of um, our best, one of our strengths as a Mormon community is that we do the, the, the quote unquote first half of life so well, but I think we do it. I think Richard Rohr's critique would be that we do it so well that people don't know that there's more, there's more to do. Um, and uh, I think, I think right now we're, we're in a trans, a transition part of our community where I think we're starting to see some mystics pop up which I'm really excited about. Like Catherine, I'd say you're one of our mystics. I think Adam Miller is one of our mystics. Thomas McConkie is one of our, Dan Weatherspoon, right? Like, I think, I think we're, we're at a, we're in a, in a place where we're starting to have mystics pop up. And just for an audience, mysticism, I would define as having personal experiences with the divine rather than mediated experiences with the divine through like institutions or leadership that you, you yourself are experiencing the divine presence uh, with some degree of regularity, you know, whether it's meditation or, or nature, however, that that's what mysticism is. And I'd say, what is interesting is that, you know, there's this, this Christian saying that the reality has a cruciform shape to it, right. Which is kind of goes to this, this tragic sense of life. Um, but I'd say that reality also has a feminine shape to it. That as I've, you know, ex, you know, had some mystical experiences in and approached wisdom, there seems to be that that's where you approach the feminine divine is in the second half of life. And it's in, these wisdom practices and in meditation and non-duality. And that to me is just so 
curious. <laughs> it's it's just so it's just so interesting to me. Uh, so maybe let's move into Lady Wisdom and Proverbs and why wisdom might be more classically associated with feminine energies. Well, my understanding is that the Hebrew language is quite gendered and the Hebrew word for wisdom is chakma uh, and it's, it's gendered female. So uh, maybe that's, maybe that was the starting point. Um, but then you also have Solomon. Um, so Solomon traditionally is understood as the writer of Proverbs and um, this theme of wisdom um, is, is quite prominent in those books. Uh, and Catherine read a passage from Proverbs. Um, a, a pretty quick study of the book of Proverbs will reveal that wisdom is not only personified as female, but she's characterized. Um, and I think it was pretty evident in uh, the passage that Catherine read. There's a kind of cosmic um, sensibility surrounding the personification. There's a woman like speaking across time with her arms wide open, beckoning people to feasts and issuing like censures and calls to repentance. And that's unusual um, in terms of like the, the gendering of, of uh, words, you know, that it's a step beyond. Um, and then we have some apocryphal texts. One is the wisdom of Solomon, which is also attributed to him as, as author. And in those apocryphal texts, these images become even more crystallized and kind of inescapable. So you could argue that when Solomon asked for the gift of wisdom, he wasn't um, looking for the ability to uh, rule fairly um, or merely that, but that he was actually seeking um, the mother, seeking the divine feminine. So Catherine might know more about this, but I, I assume that the connection between wisdom and the divine feminine originated with that tradition. Yeah, I, I don't know um, origin-wise, I guess, in our, in our world, like where the beginnings of that were, except in the garden. And, um, and I think there's my, my sense and my feeling and my understanding about what happened in the garden and Eve and the trees is like constantly evolving and like the latest I've written about in my book that's coming out in the beginning of this uh, new year. Um, so I'll save some of that for the book, but there's, there's essentially the idea that um, of Eve, like discovering her wildish nature in the garden, right. That there was this innate knowing that she had about her path and what her path would be in terms of, bringing souls into mortality so that they could choose wisdom like that that would be the way to wisdom was to come into the world not just to know the difference between good and evil that's not wisdom right like that's the beginning of that's the first half of life we'll say but that they would have the opportunity to come to the mother tree the tree of life which i equate with the tree of wisdom 
that life is wisdom, right? Like true life, true living, true like light and life that is um, divinity, that is the, the becoming, the mystery of becoming is wisdom. And, you know, I, I would, it would be, I would feel silly um, saying why, like that I know why that's all equated with, with uh, femininity. Ultimately, I just know that that's how it is um, for our world, for our people in this world, for our um, take on the path forward. And I know ultimately it's connected to the way women are wired, which is very simply in our our own brains are wired for connection. Like we're very different from men in that way that we see everything as connected. Like this happening here that is connected to this is connected to this is connected to this. Like we, we, we embody a sort of integration that is biological um, uh, in terms of like not being able to just focus on like things as separate entities or separate. And um, but I think there's layers to that. I think there's spiritual layers to that. I think there's a, a spiritual sort of mantle that we've accepted. This is just my feeling coming to earth that we would um, in our mother use way bind the things that have been broken and the separation that came from the fall that we would choose connection that we would choose um, we would fight for uh, things to be whole again And so ultimately taking the first fruit was the first choice for eternal connection. And um, I think honoring even that is something we, we fail miserably at Um, even in Mormonism. Like we do a lot of lip service, but I don't think we quite get it. No, I I would fully agree. Eve is probably one of my favorite um, scriptural figures uh, just because her choice was pretty radical. Um, and I don't think we, we do a good enough job yeah. at, like you said, I don't think we do a good enough job at honoring how radical and wild her choice was to, to even make a choice in the first place, instead of just kind of perpetuating this, Oh, well, I'm going to do what I'm told kind of thing. Um, and, uh, I, I am really drawn to kind of the symbolism of the, the nature of the tree of, of knowledge of good and evil. Um, because I think when you, when you initially approach it, it is a tree of duality that splits the world into light and darkness, good and evil. Um, but I think what I've heard in, in what you've said is that when you reapproach it, it rebinds everything back together. Um, because what the tree, the tree is the knowledge of good and evil. And the, so the tree itself is a symbol of non-duality and non-duality is, is part of this wisdom practice that the tree of wisdom held together in harmony, these desperate parts of reality and held them together in kind of balance, you know, in that kind of Taoist, that Taoist sensibility of harmony and balance rather than like righteousness. And I am really struck by that, that, that Eve had the wisdom to see the wisdom of the tree and to eat 
the fruit and to bring us into this, this kind of reality so that we can all individually figure out how to walk back to that tree ourselves. Yeah. And it's, it's interesting that you don't hear a lot in the scriptures about the tree of life that was also in the garden, right? Like the focus is on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But my feeling is that Eve knew that the way to that tree was only through the first tree. And so she had to have some recognition. She had to have some sensibility that there was more than um, like there was more to come than the first phase of existence or the second phase for them, right? That, that, it, that there was, that it wasn't the end, that going to a fallen world wasn't going to be the end. And that, um, that in Christ, like the fruit of the tree, there would be reconciliation. Yeah, it's, it's everything that we've talked um, about. Um, maintained in a simple but dynamic story there was life and then the woman chose death and we're waiting for the promise of greater life to be fulfilled life death life yeah wisdom pattern um Yeah. yeah i uh I, so uh, f- to the last question so that we can all have the rest of our Saturdays <laughs> um, is uh, how does wildness lead us to wisdom? And I guess the sub question to that is how does wisdom lead us to more wildness? Because I think they're, they're, they're kind of reciprocal things that once we get into the flow, they just kind of increase and intensify our wildness and our wisdom. I I think um, we have we have talked about this not directly directly maybe but um, it, I think it's the cycling right like that you and I I think about it in terms of root work just because of the book I've been writing like it's ingrained in my brain now it's like what it is that it's sort of like when you're in that internal realm you're like in the realm of the roots you're down there. doing a lot of like work internally having to come to terms with pain and maybe it's also pain that other people that you love carry it's not just what you're carrying like that there's a recognition of the interconnection that you have for good and for for evil for um health and for you know illness and that you um address in the moment what you what you're being asked to address right because i my experience is is at least that we're given what we can we can handle what what we can perceive what we can deal with in the moment when we ask like that there's this uh great mercy and love and like um allowing us to see what we can we can handle and it might feel like it's more than we can handle. Right. But that there is this way through it. And that if we trust in that, in that divine power that we, we will be taken through the pain so we can find the cure for the pain that we have to go through it to find the cure. And so that there's this work and then you come, 
there's an emergence, right? There's the birth and there's the recognition of, oh, this is how I am now changed. Therefore, this is now changed. And my relationship here is now changed. And then there's a dive into the dark abyss again. And then there's an, a, a re- resurrection and a death and a resurrection. And it's um, progressive in the sense that if we're really finding wisdom, we're changing. Like there's an embodied change. It's somewhere in ourselves. Maybe we don't perceive it necessarily or directly, but that there is a change and that there's movement and progression and there's um, reconciliation and that um, my kids, um, that that is, like we're recognizing more and more than that, that's the purpose of life, like that that is life, that that's the only way that you live is to die and to be born again. Um, sorry, I kind of lost my train of thought. My kids are screaming. <laughs> speaking speaking of wildness, the, the wildness I know, of children. Sorry. <laughs> I have very expressive children. Anyway, um, yeah, so, yeah. Mm, I'm not sure. I mean, we've explored so many of the parallels um, between wildness and wisdom and woman. And we've talked about how these connections crop up all over the world and through time. And we've talked about how redemptive and healing um, these things can be um, or understanding and integrating these concepts can be but why does wildness lead one to wisdom and and then why is that reciprocal why does wisdom lead one back to wildness uh, maybe the answer is because both are good and both are innate and uh, the relationship between the two is Uh, what will ultimately heal us and lead us out of this death into a new life, into into life eternal until it comes time for the next rotation. I don't know. That's my guess. Seems to be something about that. Yeah, I think just in terms of like, final thoughts that, you know, I, when I think of the world's spiritual traditions and I think of, you know, mysticism, like I challenge you to find any spiritual tradition that wasn't, that wasn't born from a grove of trees somewhere that wasn't born from uh, an experience in the wild. And that there's just something about wild spaces that calls out of us wisdom and wildness in ourselves because you can even like Joseph Smith was a wild kind of guy. He was a wild figure, uh, in, in relative context to the world that he was, he was in, um, you know, Buddha, Jesus, John the Baptist, whatever, however you want to, they were all wild figures in their own sense. Um, and that there's just kind of something about our relationship with the natural world that leads us to wisdom, which then leads us to become wild figures that can help create wildness and wisdom in other people, ideally, hopefully. Any final thoughts? 
Um, I have this dream that has been circulating through my mind through the conversation. So maybe I can share that and find Please, a way yeah. to tie it up. Um, so I mentioned that I've been keeping a dream log for a few years and two weeks ago, I um, went back through and transcribed everything um, because I kept them as audio messages. And it was really interesting to see on paper uh, where my mind has been uh, working through things. And there was this one particular dream that made me laugh and that um, after I left, it gave me pause. So in the dream, my father is going to throw a party in the backyard. But I look out the back window and I see that the backyard is crawling with um, tigers, like full grown Bengal tigers and they're everywhere. And I perceive them as a threat. And so I like, I rush out through the back door and I grab my father by the shoulders and I'm like, what's your problem? Like, we can't have a party back here. This is a, this is a security issue. And for whatever reason, my dad is uh, blind to the tigers. He can't see them. Um, and so it's just me back there trying to take care of the situation. So I rescue my childhood dog, this little um, cockapoo named Molly, and I bring her inside and close the door. And then I notice that there are sheep in the backyard, sheep and tigers, not a great mix. And so I, um, I'm trying to help the sheep. And in the dream specifically, I'm trying to help the sheep get back to their mother. And in order to get back to their mother, they have to fit through a small slat in the wooden fence in the backyard. But these sheep are the worst and um, they're not cooperative. They're very like, uh, uh, what would be the word? They're prone to freaking out. They're very anxious and they don't trust me. And it all feels very high stakes because I'm like, if you don't cooperate, you're going to get eaten by these tigers so I spend quite a bit of time feeling frustrated at the sheep. And then I finally decide to give up. Like I wash my hands of this. I don't care what happens to you. And I sit down on a swing. So I'm sitting there and then this tiger cub wanders into my field of view and the tiger cub um, approaches me and I'm a little bit nervous and I'm not sure what's happening. Um, but I, I watch and it gets closer. And then once it's within range, it, uh, pounces and it jumps up at me and something really peculiar happens. It, it bites me, but it bites me through the tongue. That's all just the tongue. And then it kind of uh, retreats and that's where the dream ends. Um, and I've been thinking a lot about that this week. I've been thinking about that. Is it a prophecy about the lamb and the lion, like laying down together and, and that happening? Like, during the fulfillment of um, time or whatever. Uh, and it, it, it's um, the progression of the dream has been really interesting um, as I've prepared for this podcast in the, in the context of our conversation um, that my father, can't, he can't see the wild things. He can't see the, the animals that I perceive as a threat and that the lambs perceive as a threat, even though I'll mention that no harm was done to any lambs. Um, the tigers actually never did anything. It was just me and these sheep freaking out. Um, the sheep who needed to go back to their mother, but um, were too afraid to go where they needed to go. And um, 
you know, and then it kind of circles back in this, this baby tiger, uh, I don't know, unleashes my wild tongue or something to that effect. And then by the end of the dream, I'm reconsidering my fear and um, seeing things from a perspective that I didn't before. And so I guess that's my personal goal moving forward after this conversation. I'm trying to um, develop more peace and stability around this image of the, the lamb and the lion, trying to develop more patience for the parts of me that are skittish. There's the word like those sheep, the parts of me that are untrusting and um, feel unsafe in the presence of what is wild and powerful. And I'm also trying to kind of receive the gift of being bitten through the tongue, <laughs> like uh, receive, um, receive what it means to be a, a tiger, at least in that dreamscape, you know, being unseen by some, being feared by others and, um, and ultimately, hopefully, like being received as something powerful and necessary and uh, liberating. So thanks for letting me share those thoughts and that dream. And it's been really, um, really wonderful to be on the podcast with you today. Any final thoughts, Catherine? Uh, I think those are excellent uh, thoughts to end on. So yeah, thanks again, Madison. This was really great. Yeah. No, I'll, I'll, so our, uh, our episode that we did with you for the, the end of the world and the feminine divine, that was our most popular episode of the season. No way. And so, uh, I, yeah, so I fully like, I feel like mm. there's a hunger in the community for discourse and dialogue about the, you know, the divine feminine in kind of ways that we're not used to approaching the divine feminine. And I, I think that this, the conversation, this three hour conversation we've had, uh, will, you know, when chunked out appropriately, I think it'll be really, um, uh, potent, uh, listening for a lot of people in the community, awesome. which is good. So, so thank you guys for, for being on. This is really a, a joy. Yeah. I just want to say Madison, Amber, like was very impressed with your outline and I was too, but I wasn't surprised. Oh. I just, I just want you to know, like, you're doing awesome work and it's, um, it's really great to have that coming. I mean, it would be good coming from any, like, but coming from a man, right? Like, it's really wonderful to like, see your recognition of things and to feel like you're creating a space for women to like engage in, in dialogue in a safe way. So we really commend you for that. Thank you. You can thank my mom. <laughs> thanks, mom. <laughs> yeah, thanks, Michelle. Thank you for joining us in the spiritual wilds on this episode of Bristlecone Firesides. If you're vibing with this podcast, please share widely with your friends, family, and neighbors, and consider leaving us a five-star rating or written review through the podcasting app of your choice. Screenshot your review and tag us on Instagram or Twitter, and we'll hook you up with some free Bristlecone Fireside stickers. This season's beautiful cover art was provided by Ash Rowan Designs, and our fresh new music was composed by Brenton Jackson. Bristlecone Firesides is a proud member of the Dialogue Podcast Network. The Dialogue Podcast Network features many great podcasts exploring LDS faith through diverse and rigorous scholarship. Please visit dialoguejournal.com slash podcast network to learn more. 
For more from Madison, Abby, and the Bristlecone family, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, or TikTok, and visit our website to enjoy more earthy content on faith, activism, and belonging to the earth. From the Red Rock Deserts and high mountains of Utah, we wish you peace and goodness as you strive to become one with this good and wild earth.